0: Hello, and welcome to the House of Legends, where you can hear world myths and legends told by a professional storyteller. If you're a new listener, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, then hit subscribe now in your podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. On this podcast, you'll hear myths, legends, and traditional stories from myself and master storytellers from across the world. I release two episodes each month, one featuring a story from me, and one featuring a story from a guest teller. You can get access to every House of Legends episode by becoming a patron. By pledging $5 per month or more, you'll receive a patron-only episode each month, along with a worksheet full of questions and creative prompts to help you deepen your connection to the story. As well as being an oral storyteller, I'm also an author and a storytelling coach. You can now find my books by searching for Daniel Allison on all the major online bookstores, although currently you can only get my full catalog on Amazon. You can get my book, The Shattering Sea, as a free download on Kindle, Kobo, Nook and Apple Books. If you're interested in becoming a storyteller yourself, or you're already a storyteller and would like to develop your craft, you can join my online storytelling school, The Roundhouse, or you can join my Myth Singer's coaching program which includes Roundhouse membership, plus two monthly group coaching sessions with me. Visit roundhouseschool.com to explore the Roundhouse and download a free pack of stories. You'll find links to all of the above in the show notes. My guest on today's episode is Phil O'Quedi. Phil is a Welsh-Nigerian storyteller based in Pembrokeshire. He draws deeply on his dual heritage and multiple cultures in order to find the contemporary in the traditional. Phil regularly performs in storytelling clubs and is featured at Beyond the Border and Aberystwyth storytelling festivals, as well as at Kia Festival in Greece and Fabula Festival in Sweden. I met Phil at Beyond the Border this summer, where he delivered the premiere of his brilliant new show, The Gods Are All Here. In this episode, we talk about Phil's experiences and approach to storytelling, and we hear a telling from The Gods Are All Here. Hello, Phil. Welcome to House of Legends.
1: Good morning, Daniel. Uh, Thank you for inviting me.
0: It's a pleasure. And I'd like to start off by just asking my guest where you are in the world.
1: I am in Wales. uh, And for those of your listeners who don't know where Wales is, it's attached to England. (laughs) It's to the west of England and sandwiched between England and the Irish Sea. And I'm almost at the Irish Sea, I'm not far west.
0: Okay, so you're right on the tip. Yeah. Yeah. And have you lived in Wales all your life?
1: Yeah, I have. Apart from little bits of work in London and uh, university, I, I've always lived in Wales, and I've always lived in this bit of Wales. So uh, Pembrokeshire. Yeah, make sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've not seen enough of Wales and Pembrokeshire is high on my list. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, the land around there and perhaps uh, any stories around there that you have a connection to?
1: Yeah, um, so it's very it's the coast. You know, the part that I live in is the coast. And in fact, um, I don't think in the UK, you're more than 70 miles away from the sea, wherever you are, and it would be a lot less in Wales. Um, so there are a lot of windy lanes, so it might take you quite a long time to get to the sea, but you're never too far away from it. I live right on the coast, five minutes down the road, there's a headland, uh, a limestone headland, where uh, I've done a story walk in the past, kind of embedding stories in the landscape. Um, And a lot of Welsh folktales are embedded in the landscape in a particular location. Um, And that led me early on in my storytelling to, to try and figure out how I could tell a series of Welsh folk tales, being in the location. And, um, and I came across the idea of the Welsh cattle drovers. Now, the Welsh cattle drovers are kind of the first cowboys. Uh, mostly they didn't ride horses, though. They walked wearing wooden clogs. And what they would do is they would collect up cattle throughout Wales, this part of Wales, uh, maybe 200 cattle, 250. And then a group of men, a group of cattle drovers, would walk them out of Wales all the way to the meat markets in England. And having come across that idea, I found a way of using a drover to kind of walk through the landscape to the places where the stories happen. Um, yeah. And um, and that story begins in north of me, north Pembrokeshire, in a place called Moilgrove. Um and then the drover he he takes uh, he takes his his walk um, inland, uh, and eventually uh, finds himself in London, um, where he meets Adine Husbis, and uh, Adeen Husbis is a cunning man, and um, perhaps um, people may have heard of the story of Arthur uh, in the cave with his sleeping warriors. And so that's what happens in in Will and the Welsh Black Cattle is the book actually that I wrote with these five folk tales and a true tale. In. and uh, And Will the drover meets um, a Dean husband, a cunning man who takes him to Arthur's cave and gives him great riches. But of course, as it's a story, that all goes horribly wrong.
0: <laughs> okay. And oh, that's interesting. So you've got a book out already. And uh, I encountered you at Beyond the Border Festival uh, this summer uh, where you performed a show, uh, two, two hours storytelling show. I was only able to catch the second half, but I really, really enjoyed it. And the whole audience did enjoy it. As I remember, you got a standing ovation and there was just so much in it. Um, I feel like seeing it once was like just uh, Almost the first run, you know, that you need to go back and you could go back again and go back again. And I wonder if you could just tell our listeners about what, what it is you're doing there.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's born out of another storytelling show, actually. Um, and that, that one's called uh, Stick Fighting Warriors. This show is called The Gods Are All Here. And, um, and I began to explore a while ago uh, blending, weaving together folktale, myth, and personal family history stories. Uh, and so that's what that show is about. It's actually based around um, uh, a, uh, a bunch of letters that I found in my mother's flat uh, after she died, written from my father to her. Um, so a one-way correspondence. And in, this, in the show, I kind of investigate those those letters whilst uh, relating personal story my actual experience of growing up in wells in the 1960s and 70s and kind of beginning to uh, experience racism and understand uh, or growing aware of of what was happening with that um but it's not all doom and gloom <laughs> um uh and then mixed with with myth and uh folk tales from africa and the diaspora Uh, And currently, um, the the performance you saw actually was the first uh, live physical performance of that show because I developed it uh, thanks to an Arts Council of Wales grant, sustainability grant, um, online during uh, the first and second, maybe even the third lockdown. and I developed it with Michael Harvey, storyteller Michael Harvey, as dramaturg. So while I was coming up with bits of story and ideas, he he was kind of um, questioning and provoking, uh, and causing me to develop it further, which is great. And um, and it was a really uh, it was a really fantastic thing to do during lockdown. I did a couple of online performances. Um, to invited audiences so that they could feedback, and that then went further into developing the show. And so at Beyond the Border was its first live iteration. But I'm uh, very happy to say that just recently, um, Adverse Camber, the storytime production company, uh, have been successful in securing funding. Uh, and so we're going to be touring the show. Uh, beginning in the spring in May uh, next year, twenty-two, and then uh, in the autumn throughout Wales, um, and we'll be in in venues. Uh, uh, there's a venue in Cardiff called Chapter and Aberystwyth Art Centre, um, and as I say, throughout Wales, and actually um, in the in the Village Storytelling Festival in Glasgow in June, uh, I'll be performing. Um, I, mean, every, I have everything crossed that we will all be able to be together um, and so if anybody would like to know about those dates or follow any of that they can they can sign up to Adverse Canva's e-newsletter um, at uh, mm-hmm. uh and yeah as I say that's that's Arts Council of Wales funding to tour the show too uh, for which I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah, oh, that's fantastic news. That's that's wonderful, and I can let my newsletter subscribers know about that maybe closer to the date we've got listeners across the UK. Um, yeah. so send out links. Uh, yeah, that's that's wonderful. And could you tell us a bit more about um, what you mentioned—the material that went into the show? So these these letters, uh, there were one way, and the experience of growing up in Wales and encountering racism. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to tell
1: you a bit of story later, so I I don't want to do too many spoilers. But I think what I would talk about, actually, is why, perhaps, um, I did this. And very early in my storytelling career, I mean, almost right at the beginning, I came across this idea of of what stories we can tell. What stories is it okay for us to tell? Uh, Questions of cultural appropriation, that kind of thing. And it kind of sort of froze me because I I instantly felt, well, I don't have any kind of tradition to tell out of. You know, I'm I'm Welsh and uh, and I'm Nigerian, Igbo, but uh, I'm a black man. So not my experience is not quite Welsh and, um, and I never lived with my Igbo family so when i came to telling stories i didn't have a tradition to tell out of so um so i began telling stories and i tell stories that speak to me wherever they come from um in order to entertain primarily and uh, and in the hope that i'm not appropriating anything in doing that i'm sharing because stories are are sharing aren't they you know mm. but then a bit later um I, I don't know if it happens to every storyteller, but I, I sort of, I was watching storytellers at festivals and seeing performances and people I admired. And and I saw that people were telling myth. And I thought, it's time for me to tell myth. But for the reasons that I've just said, I couldn't find a myth that would speak to me. Um, in, I think it was twenty. 15 maybe or 16. Um, another storyteller, Peter Stevenson, put on a festival in Aberystwyth with the Mabinogion. All four branches were told uh, by 12 storytellers, and it was fantastic. And I love those stories, but to tell them myself, they just don't speak to me. Uh, I began looking at Igbo sto- oh, stories, Igbo myth, and um, yeah, again. Uh, I think because I'm not embedded in that culture, for some reason, it didn't speak to me. So, so I thought that perhaps what I needed to do was create my own kind of myth. Um, and so I started exploring things with my family, family stories, personal stories, uh, and finding folk tales that can somehow resonate with those stories, one resonating with the other. So they're, they're more than their parts. Um, and and I think also what I was trying to do was give them contemporary relevance to make them really relevant now. Uh, and I understand, of course, that, you know, listeners bring what they bring. And, and at the moment they hear a story, it may have absolute resonance for them. But I think I was a bit more, felt a bit more purposeful, certainly in making them relevant to me um, and in the hope um, and belief that they are, that makes them relevant to to the listeners
0: mm. and that's the fascinating thing isn't it that you can bring so much but the listener is bringing so much as well and that's the unique alchemy of what happens when all these things meet
1: it's uh it's an amazing thing i can remember the first time i told a, a story and it drew tears from somebody there were about 30 people Uh, And, you know, like lots of stories, it had it had lots of mood changes, but I would have said overall, you know, it was a it was a a, a humorous story. But for one person, for whatever was going on for them, there was a a moment uh, that really resonated for them. And that's and that's what it brought from them. That's what it meant to them. And I think that is absolutely fascinating and always a reminder that we make the story together.
0: Mm, absolutely. And it, it can be a bit frightening, even I find when you think about it, because um, I know there were times when I was starting out when I think I didn't have quite enough respect or seriousness on a particular day with a particular story. And then I realized it's landed sort of more, the, you know, harder than I thought it was going to. And then you can that felt really irresponsible to have not been holding that.
1: I think um yeah, I think we sometimes we have to be kind to ourselves too, though, because yeah. even with experience, if you're telling a story for the first time, uh, you're finding you're finding that story, you're finding things all the time. And in, in fact, um, somebody once told me that once once they're not finding something, when each time they tell a story, they stop telling it.
0: Mm. Oh, well, mm. remember that? Yeah, because that happens sometimes. Where I feel like. This is kind of just you know going through the motions and yeah, yeah,
1: it's not yeah. a good thing, is it? No, it isn't. No, isn't it? It's time to stop and maybe you leave it for a while and you can come back to it. I mean, I think I also found early on, you know, when you're when you first start and you're desperate for every opportunity and you take every opportunity. So I would, I would uh, tell stories. People would ask for theme. Uh, actually, the first Halloween storytelling um evening I did, which was only the second. Uh, second um show that i did uh public performance on my own and um and i learned stories for that which i've never told again Uh, and yeah and it kind of as you as you go on perhaps it's easier to find you find your own groove but at first you're quite a lot of bank of stories that i've never I've never told again, you know.
0: Yeah, I did the exact same thing. Like, oh, God, I need this for the, that event and that for that event. And grew and grew. And now it's it's more of a kind of peering down and letting things go and finding the ones that are, have a real connection with.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they, you know, and they do, when you have that connection and when when you are still finding things in them, they stand a lot of telling.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you get started telling
1: um, so I was a primary school teacher and um, and in our school, we wanted to raise the attainment of in writing of the children. And we identified that the children, one of the problems was the children didn't have any stories in their heads. So when they came to write, all their energy went on what happened next. So uh, I always say, you know, Johnny, little Johnny was sitting there and he's writing and he writes, uh, me and Davy were running down the road when we saw a spaceship and it landed and then we pulled out our guns and bang, 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 in big capital letters and lots of exclamation marks. And that's 45 minutes to do that, you know, because they didn't have any stories, So all the energy went on what happened next. So we had a storyteller in, uh, Michael Harvey, actually. Ah, Yeah, yeah. So there's that connection goes back a long way. And he came in every half term. So that was six times in the year. And each group of teachers then had six opportunities to learn to tell stories. And then we would go back to our classes and share the stories with the children who would then they would learn them with us. But then they would also take them and, and tell them in their own words. So they had ownership, which was really important. Uh, I might spend two weeks and maybe chaos in the class. And I'd be telling, they'd be telling in groups, they'd be exploring by maybe doing some drama with it. And they do story maps and all sorts of things. And then once they had the story, we could come back to the writing element. And and I could, you know, I could focus with them on their vocabulary choices and the sentence patterns they were using and writing settings and character characters. Um, And it worked. And it, it raised the attainment in writing, but I found what I really loved was storytelling. Um, and so uh, I began exploring ways to tell stories. Uh, I went on a course again, actually run by Michael Harvey. And out of that, um, and, and at that point, just getting up and telling a story was massive. And, and at that point, the story was a kind of shield that I used to protect myself from the audience. Uh, so it's, it's a quite a long uh, and steep learning curve. Um, but I was very lucky and I got involved with um, Beyond the Border Storytelling Festival, the Welsh International Storytelling Festival, who uh, they were involved in a project with four other storytelling festivals, international storytelling festivals, where they had um, mentors and student storytellers. So through that, I got to go to um, Sweden uh, and to Greece uh, and to to tell stories there and at Beyond the Border. Uh, And then that that developed, um, and my own telling developed. And for a while, where I live, I ran a storytelling club, and that was great because I got to... Because I live at the end of Wales, um, and, you know, it's quite a long journey. made sense to have a storytelling club because that was the only way you were going to hear stories (laughs) to get people to come um and so that was great for a while and then in 2017 um redundancy the opportunity of redundant take redundancy came up so i grabbed it with both hands um and i've been very fortunate i think since my timing was good because uh, here in wales where the the um, school curriculum is undergoing great changes and it's uh the new curriculum is about to be launched next september but for the last six years a lot of work has been done in schools around this new curriculum um, and a, a really important element of the new curriculum is that creativity is at its heart and so along with uh, arts council wales the welsh government um started this initiative where creative practitioners of all kinds, uh, you know, not just storytellers and painters and artists, but maybe architects and gardeners and cake makers, all sorts of people go into schools and, uh, and and work collaboratively with teachers and groups of children to to um, create bespoke projects that explore um, ways of facilitating, developing creative uh habits and skills uh so i've been really lucky because that's that's sustained me quite a lot and then recently this last year another element of the new curriculum is um is kanevan projects and kanevan is a welsh word that means something like um home or belonging Uh, and it's aimed at exploring ways in which black asian and minority ethnic uh, experience, contributions, and histories um, can be taught is not the right word, can be facilitated. Those uh, perspectives can be looked at and facilitated through uh, the whole of the curriculum, because um, because that is all going to be mandatory in the curriculum next year too. Um, so that's been really, really interesting.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, it really sounds like there's a lot of good things going on in Wales.
1: Yeah, well, we we keep our fingers, because there are a lot of good things going on, but we keep our fingers crossed that um, that somehow they managed to negotiate uh, this really forward-looking curriculum with, with the data-driven exam-filled mm-hmm. curriculum, um, which is what all schools and teachers are still judged by. So it's a, it's a kind of, there's a real tension there, but there's definitely a desire to, to move forward, which is great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I wonder if you'd be willing to share a story with our listeners.
1: I would be delighted to share a story with the, the listeners. I, I think um, as we've spoken about it, I'd like to, to tell you uh, and the listeners uh, the beginning right. of my new show, The Gods Are All Here, um, because I think you can, you'll feel and see the mixture of the personal um,
0: and the myth and the folktale. Fantastic. Well, over to you.
1: Two rivers, one yellow, one blue, flow into the same lake where they turn the waters green. The people say that the yellow river is the goddess of the land, the blue, the god of the water, that these two are married and the water turning green is a symbol of their unity. And the people say that swimming in that green water is the spirit of their unity, Mami Water. And the people say that as long as the water remains green, then the fertile floodplain will provide all that is needed for life. Well, one day, a young woman was down beside the green waters of that lake. She was all alone picking berries. Now, she shouldn't have been all alone, because everybody knew that the slave breeders were abroad. But she'd only just found this berry bush, and she wasn't yet ready to share it with anybody else. But just as she plucked a big, fat, juicy berry and was about to put it in her mouth, she saw a disturbance in the water, something swimming towards her, something huge, something with eyes, something with a lot of teeth, a crocodile. She looked around. There was a tree nearby. She scrambled up it. By the time she looked back, the crocodile had hauled itself out onto the bank. It shivered and shook off its skin like it was an old coat. And there stood a woman with long wavy hair, rings on her bony fingers, a single red feather hanging from an earring. Now, if you and I had been there, we'd have been hard-pressed to say what age this woman was, because one minute she seemed as lithe and graceful as a dancer, the next bent with the weight of the years. But the young woman knew who this was, all right. This was Mammy Wata. She watched, fascinated, as Mami Water rolled up the crocodile's skin and wedged it down between the roots of a tree and then set off across the fertile floodplain and disappeared into the forest. The young woman looked back at the place where Mami Water had hidden the skin. All her life, she'd dreamt of seeing Mami Water, and now this? It was an opportunity too good to miss, so she climbed down this tree She went over to the the tree and pulled out the skin. And the moment she held it, a warmth entered her hands. It began to travel up her arms. And the skin itself, it was beautiful. It was still wet. It glistened with greens and browns and yellows. She didn't want to let it go. She knew she should put it back, but just a little longer to hold it, but not here in case somebody came. So she climbed back up the tree. And then she looked again at the skin, at its ridges and valleys. And that warmth that had entered her hands and her arms, it now entered her chest. And it began to rumble, it began to hum. It was almost like a song, the most beautiful song she'd ever heard. And then she heard a noise. And here came mummy water, running across the fertile floodplain. And behind her, crashing out of the trees, there came a horse and rider, and then a line of men, some with sticks, some with ropes. Mammy Water ran back to the place where she'd hidden the skin and cried out, Ah, my skin, help me, please, somebody help. The young woman held the skin up. She wanted to shout something. She wanted to say something, but the slave raiders. And at that moment, a net came spinning through the air. It struck Mammy Water, knocked her to the ground. She struggled, but you know what happens if you struggle in a net. And then they were on her and they bundled her up and they tied one end of a rope to the net and the other to the saddle of the horse. And then the whole band of them set off up the fertile floodplain dragging mammy water behind them. The younger man watched until they disappeared over the hill towards the village. Then she looked back at the place where Mammy Water had first come out of the lake and there lay a red feather. A breeze picked it up, sent it twirling and spinning, tumbling out over the lake where it landed on the water. Only now the water was no longer green. It was as though somebody had taken a great yellow cloth and laid it over the lake. And as the young woman looked out across that yellow cloth, about halfway across, it appeared to dive down into the shadows, and on the other side, the lake was blue. The young woman looked from the lake to the crocodile skin she held in her hands, looked to the lake, looked at the crocodile skin, and thought, what have I done? It was many hours before she did climb down from the tree, still clutching the crocodile skin, and made her way up the fertile floodplain over the hill to the village. She found it devastated. Some houses were smashed, some smoldered. Here and there, there was a dead body she made her way deeper into the village people appeared at first they were delighted to see her another person survived the slave raiders but then they saw the crocodile skin and when they asked her where she got it and she told them they threw their hands up in the air abomination they cried it's an abomination how dare you and they they chased her they chased her out of the village they cast her out of the village never to come back And so she went to the only place she could think of. In a thicket deep in the forest, there was the shrine to Mami Water. In the front, an alcove where the statues of Mami Water were kept, where the mirrors and combs and paraphernalia of Mami Water were kept. And behind, a small room. And that's where the young woman lived with nothing for company but that crocodile skin, for which she made a little wicker basket. But every day after that, she made her way down across the fertile floodplain to the lake to pray that the waters would turn back green. Because that was the only way she would be able to go and live back in the village. Years passed. She was middle-aged by now but still every day she made her way down across the dying floodplain to the waters of the lake to pray, to dance, to sing, the waters would turn back green, for she must be able to go and live back in the village because she must die in the village when her time came. Many, many, many more years passed, but still every day, As an old woman now bent with the weight of the years, she made her way down across the dead floodplain to the waters of the lake to pray, to dance, to sing, to curse, to beg that those waters would turn back green for she had to live back in the village so she could die there when her time came for that was the only way she could join the ancestors. Well, one day as she arrived at the lakeside and was about to begin praying, she saw something floating on the water's surface. At first she thought it was a log, but she could see beneath the green weed that clung to it, there was something white. So she waded into the water. She pulled the weed off to find it was a crocodile egg, only it was huge. It was the biggest crocodile egg she'd ever seen. She steered it out and rolled it up onto the bank. Now she had it there, she wasn't quite sure what to do. She looked around and found a stick, and she broke a hole into the egg and saw a pair of eyes looking back at her. She made the hole bigger, a nose, a mouth, curly hair, but the face that looked back at her, it was completely white. She broke the egg right open and out climbed a boy of about 11 or 12. Well, what do you do with a boy you find in a crocodile egg? You take him home, right? And that's what she did. Now, I only have one photograph of my parents together. Uh, It's a black and white photograph. It was taken in 1961 um, in in somewhere called Joe's Cafe, which was down in the docks in Cardiff, the capital city of Wales. And uh, in it, my father's got a suit on and my mother's got a nice dress on and my father's uh, curly African hair has got a a deep um, parting in it. and My mother's hair is done just so and their faces look out from the photograph full of happiness and hope. And you know, every time I look at it, I think just how insignificant they were to me. You see, I didn't grow up with either of them. Although I had contact with my mum throughout her life, I wasn't raised by either of them, but by a long-term foster mother, Auntie Barbara. And so they never supplied or generated for me the family myths that I imagine that people who grew up with their parents have. So I never heard them arguing about whether the toilet seat should be up or down. My father didn't have the opportunity to mould my character like one of my friend's dad's did who cleaned his kid's shoes every Sunday night. If my dad had done that, maybe I would have been an entirely different kind of man. Uh, My mother wasn't there to remind me to put on a clean pair of pants every day in case I was run over and had to go to hospital. If she had been, maybe I'd have become a doctor. Who knows? But she wasn't there. He wasn't there. They weren't there. They were absent and so insignificant. Uh, you know, the only thing they actually give me when I think about it was, was life. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm joking. Of course, they were significant, but they were significant by their absence. Because they were absent, I grew up with that long term foster mother, Auntie Barb. Now, Auntie Barb, before the Second World War, had been a nurse. During it, she ran a convalescence home in Italy. And after it, she became part of the welfare arm of the Burgeoning National Health Service. And as such, she had a whole string of foster children until in 1956, she had one as the last, my brother. Uh, and the reason that he went to live with her was because my mum didn't want to give him up for adoption completely. She wanted to have some contact. And the nearest person the hospital owner in Cardiff could find to take a little mixed-race boy was Auntie Barbara down in Pembroke Dock, which is as far west as you can go in Wales without falling into the Irish Sea. And so six years later, when I was born, I don't think it was even a question. My mother got on a train and she travelled to Pembroke Dock and she handed me over to Auntie Barbara. And I don't recall a time when I didn't know that. And so Auntie Barbara always seemed to me like a gift from the gods. Whereas my parents, absent, distant, mysterious, were more like the gods. And then when my mother died in 2005, um, it fell to me to do that awful job of clearing out her flat. You know, that job where. On the first day, every empty matchbox, every old ticket that you come across seems like like some sacred object to be poured over and thought about and considered. Whereas by the third day, you're just hurling it all in black bags, loading it in the car, driving to the recycling center and checking it in the tip. Well, during that process, I found this bundle of letters. Great big bundle of letters written by my father to my mother. Um, The letters begin before I was born and they go up to the time of I was about 12. And it's just one way correspondence, don't have my mother's replies. But you know, the moment that I found them, I felt this great sense of obligation, like I should do something with them. But I had no idea what. So I took them home and I put them in a cupboard. And I didn't forget about them, uh, but I didn't do very much about them. And over the years, every so often, they would come up in conversation. Anytime I mentioned them, people would say, "What? you've got letters from your father to your mother that you've never read. What's the matter with you? After about 10 years, I began to think, yeah, maybe they've got a point. So I, I gave it some thought. What was this sense of obligation? What did these letters want from me? And actually, once I gave it some thought, the answer came quite easily. The letters, they wanted this. They wanted a story. But there was another side to that, too. What did I want from the letters? And that came quite easily. Because I realized that what I wanted to do was, was to read those letters and see if I could find the parents I'd never had. But how do you do that? Well, somewhere I'd come across the notion that all children as they develop, at some point see their parents as gods. And so I thought, I'll read the letters and see if I can't see my parents as gods in them. And if you'd like to know more, uh, I would encourage you to go <laughs> to uh, to Adverse Canva's website and um, sign up to the e-letter where you'll be able to see the tour dates. Um, but I also should mention, actually, Daniel, that uh, we are intending to do an online version uh, a performance at some point. I don't have a date for that yet, but um, if you're interested, uh, look out for
0: that. Whew wow thank you so much phil i that was literally gripping i felt like i was gripped in some kind of vice it was so powerful right from the start uh the the personal story the 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 mythic story wow and i'm really glad you said that about an online telling because most of our listeners are spread around the world uh, so they'll be really glad to hear that i think so yeah thank you so much
1: uh, thank you No, thank you for uh for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to talk about the show and and to chat with you it's been it's been really great
0: mm, absolutely well we'll bring things to a close then and um, can you tell us where we can find more of you yeah um
1: so uh, as i said you can you can find out about the tour at adverse but you can find out me about me at uh, wW w.philakwadystoryteller.uk,
0: Um Yeah. Yeah, I'll put links in the show notes. Great. that'll you. all be there. Yeah. Wonderful. All right, well, we'll sign off. Uh, thanks again for coming on House of Legends. And uh, it's at the time of recording, it's uh, just past the winter solstice. So I hope you have a great midwinter and a great Christmas and New Year and all the rest of it
1: yeah and and happy christmas and solstice to you too daniel thank you
0: that's all for this week if you're enjoying the podcast please support it by sharing it on social media read and sharing the link with a few friends who enjoy a good story i'd also really appreciate a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen as reviews really help the podcast to grow you can get access to every house of legends episode by becoming a patron By pledging five dollars per month or more you'll receive a patron-only episode each month along with a worksheet full of questions and creative prompts to help you deepen your connection to the story if you'd like to read stories as well as hear them you can now find my books by searching for daniel allison at all major online bookstores although currently you can only get my full catalogue on amazon you can get my free ebook silverborne by visiting my website www.houseoflegends.me and don't forget if you're interested in becoming a storyteller yourself, or you're already a storyteller and would like to develop your craft, you can join my online storytelling school, The Roundhouse, or you can join my Myth Singer's coaching program, which includes a Roundhouse membership plus two monthly group coaching sessions with me. You'll find links to all of the above in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.